morning, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. The last time I preached on this verse, a number of people left the church. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're not leaving, <laughs> just so you know, you're locked in and uh, I got stuff on you, right? So uh, there, might, there might be some meth in your vehicle if you decide to leave the church. I'm kidding, of course, right? But... I'm just telling you, right? This <laughs> that's what happened, right? So anyways, 1 Timothy chapter number 3, we're going to uh begin reading in verse uh 14 and we're going to read verse 14 and verse 15. Just two verses this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 and verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14. These things write I unto thee hoping to come unto thee shortly. Verse 15 will be where our thoughts are dedicated today. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The title of the message this morning is in the form of a question. And that question is this. Is our church still relevant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time to be in your house today. We rejoice in you and who you are. We thank you for your perfectly preserved word. Lord, you inspired your word and of course because you inspired it that necessitates that you preserved it. We are thankful that we have your word today. And Lord, I just ask that you'd help us as we gather together as a New Testament church. Lord, celebrating these 17 years that you've allowed us to exist and thrive as a church and Lord through all the difficulties and trials and temptations there have been so many blessings and ways that you've used each one of us and the church uh, corporately as a whole and I pray that you'd help us Lord to ensure that we're doing what we should be doing and that we're maintaining and holding the line and that in it you would be honored and glorified and Lord that we would certainly understand that this is your church this is your house and uh, we're to behave a certain way because it belongs to you. She belongs to you. And so meet with us today. Help us have your own will and way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is our church still relevant? Today is the 17th anniversary of when we first met in our living room over on Kingsley Drive. The 24th of September, 2006. Happy anniversary. We thank the Lord for what He's done through this church and in this church, and of course to Him be all honor and glory. Now, given all that has taken place in those 17 years, and of course the state of affairs in the world today, we are forced to ask this question, is our church still relevant? Earlier this year, an organization known as Church Track. They're an organization that helps churches with software and administrative functions and, you know, putting their giving records together and so forth. They published a report entitled, The State of Church Attendance, Trends and Statistics. And uh, they cited a, uh, numbers from recent Gallup and Pew Research polls. These are 2023 statistics. In their report and this would be no surprise to you, they cited that both according to Gallup and the Pew Research Center, regular church attendance has steadily declined since the turn of the century. We can see that. We understand that. But then think about these statistics. Only 20% of Americans attend church every week. 20%. 41% of Americans are in monthly church attendance or perhaps more than once a month. 57% of Americans seldom or never are in a religious service attendance. Certainly, the worship of the Lord and attendance in His house has declined. And as we read our text here in 1 Timothy chapter number 3, and we read verse 14, but... As I mentioned, verse 15 is really where we want to focus. 
The text clearly shows that the institution of the Lord's church will always be relevant, right? It's his house. It's his church. And so uh, we're very familiar with uh, Paul's words to Timothy, how he encouraged him to carry out the, the office that God had appointed him to, and that he wasn't to be timid or afraid, that he was to preach the word and in season and out of season. And so there's no doubt that the Lord's church, the Lord's kind of church, will always be relevant until the rapture when the Lord returns to take his people home to be with him. We're all familiar with Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18 where the Lord is speaking to Peter. And in Matthew 16 verse 18 the Bible reads, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, meaning upon himself, upon the Lord Jesus Christ, this mass of a rock, he would build his church. He says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, there is no doubt that the Lord's kind of churches will always be relevant. But that isn't the question that I pose. The question is, is our church still relevant? Does this church still matter? Does this church still serve a purpose for today? Do we make any difference in the lives of anyone? We need to be relevant. Is our church still relevant? And of course you understand that when I when I use the term our church, I understand that the church belongs to the Lord, but I'm talking about this church, the church that we attend, the church that we are members of. Is our church still relevant? Well, there are three ways that I want to investigate and speak about this morning. Three ways to ensure that our church remains relevant. Three ways. The first way... And by the way, some of these might not make any sense to you as we go through them, but I'll explain, right? So the first way that we can ensure that our church remains relevant is we must confirm that the church was properly organized. We have to confirm that the church was properly organized. I'll explain what I mean by that as we get into the message. Secondly, the second way we can ensure that our church remains relevant is that we carry out the Savior's prescribed orders. That we carry out the, the Savior's prescribed orders. And then the third way that we can ensure that our church remains relevant is we must count on church members to perform their obligations. Three ways to ensure that our church remains relevant. Is our church still relevant? Well, we can answer that in the affirmative if we are looking and paying attention to these three ways that we can ensure that our church does remain relevant. The first way that we can ensure that our church remains relevant is that we confirm that our church was properly organized. And you might think about this and say, well, what does this have to do with the church already existing and, and attempting to remain relevant? Well, bear with me on this because it requires a little bit of investigation as to what a church is, right? The church that Jesus established, the first church that ever existed, was a church at Jerusalem. And that church originated with Jesus, and He organized that church. He organized that church with the material that had been prepared for Him by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent to baptize. We're going to talk more about the authority that John had here in just a little bit. And so the church originated with Jesus and he organized her. Now in our text, in 1 Timothy chapter number 3 and verse number 15, we're going to skip over the first portion of that verse because we're going to come back to that later and we're actually going to treat that lastly uh, as we think about ways to ensure that our church remains relevant. But I want you to notice in verse 15 that Paul writes that, uh, that we're supposed to know how to behave ourselves where? In the house of God, which is the church of the living God. This is 
the Lord's church. Every true church is the Lord's church, right? And we must question this morning, are we really a church according to Scripture? Because I'm going to tell you, and you may disagree with me and we can discuss this and study this, but I do not believe that a guy that just wakes up one morning and says, hey, I'm going to start a church, and then he just goes out and starts a church, starts putting up signs and handing out flyers and giving tracts out and so forth, and then they got a bunch of people that come and they start attending and they call themselves a church. I don't believe that that's a church in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ scripturally. I believe that a church must be properly organized. Are we really a church according to Scripture? Now, we may not think that this is necessary to examine in light of the question, is our church still relevant? But I want you to think about recent situations and recent conversations that we've had with other pastors and with other scenarios that we know about where the issue of proper church authority and proper church organization has come up. And, beloved, it's caused some divisions. And I say divisions not in a negative way. I believe that our brothers that are involved in these situations are, are, are doing what is appropriate according to the Scriptures. And so I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative or negative way. But we must confirm that our church was properly organized. What am I saying? I'm saying that in order for our church to still be relevant, we need to first of all ensure that we are a church. Right? we got to be a church. There's a lot of... There's a lot of buildings that have a sign on them that says church and they're nothing like a church of the Bible. And so in order for us to be relevant, we must be a church. And that means that that first of all, we need to provide an explanation of the term church. Now, I will tell you that as you've been, uh, most of you have been here throughout the 17 years, some a little less than that, you know that I preached on these topics multiple times. You're probably not going to hear anything new this morning, but again, uh, what is the mother of learning? Repetition, right? And so we, we need to first provide an explanation of the term church. What do we mean by church? So we define, we define the term. We define the term. Now, the Greek word ekklesia is the, uh, that is the, the, the Greek word that is used by which we have in our English Bibles the word translated church or churches. It appears 114 times in 111 verses. Uh, It appears two times in three different verses. It appears 117 times in Strong's Concordance. And uh, that is because there are three references in Strong's to subscriptions uh, that are written in particular books, like in Romans and 2 Timothy and Titus. The subscription that's at the end, some people might not consider that to be scripture, right? But uh, whatever your view is on that. And then three times, uh, the word is translated assembly, uh, particularly in the book of Acts, chapter number 19. Ecclesia, and you can look this up in Strong's Concordance, it's number 1577. And I mentioned Strong's, although I do reference a number of other lexicons and concordances and helps. Uh, Strong's is the most widely used and the most well-known. And so in Strong's, you will find that the Greek word ekklesia literally means a called-out assembly. It is a called-out assembly. And so when you see the word church mentioned in Scripture, it has to mean an assembly. That is the meaning of the Greek word ekklesia. John Broadus, the old Baptist, Uh, gave us this definition of the classical use of the word ecclesia, right? He wrote that it signified primarily the assembly of citizens in a self-governed state out out of and from their homes or places of business to summon, as we speak, of calling out the militia. And that was the historical reference and the historical use of the word ecclesia. In Acts chapter number 19, you'll find that the word is used as the, the, the town assembles as they're called by the, by the <coughs> town clerk. And that word is ecclesia for assembly, right? And so, <coughs> excuse me, as we define 
the term and the word church, we have to understand what the Greek word means. It always means an assembly. And so this will be nothing new to you, but I give you the definition uh, that I believe and that Baptists have historically believed uh, defines a church. And by the way, you say, well, you're giving us what Baptists believe. Well, of course I am. I'm a Baptist. If I was a Methodist, I'd tell you what the Methodists believe. If I was a Church of Christ, I'd tell you what Church of Christ believes. I'm not any of those because I believe that the Baptists are right according to Scripture. It has nothing to do with fleshly pride and, oh, he's a Baptist. No, as I look at what Baptists have historically believed and I look at what the Bible teaches, I say, yeah, the group that most closely resembles what I believe the Bible teaches are the Baptists, okay? Uh, so don't get upset with me because I'm quoting Baptists. I'm a Baptist, right? If you listen to this on sermon audio and you're some other denomination, you shouldn't expect me to quote yours. And by, all the way, I, by the way, I will use a quote from the Lutherans here in just a moment. Uh, but uh, this is what I believe, right? And Baptists have believed that this is the definition of a church. It is a properly organized, don't skip that part, it is a properly organized body of scripturally baptized believers who are congregated together to carry out Christ's great commission. That is a generally accepted definition of, of what the New Testament refers to as a church. It is a properly organized body of scripturally baptized believers who are congregated together to carry out Christ's great commission. And so, having defined church, we now want to describe church. We want to describe what a church is. And of course, we always begin by treating the topic negatively in the sense that we tell you what it is not. What it is not, right? The church is not a social institution. We do not exist just to get together and have a good time. Now, after the morning service, you know our, our, our schedule of services. After our morning service, every week, we have lunch together. Do we not? And then we have an afternoon service where we again study the Word of God. Now, the afternoon lunch together is not why we come. And if that's why you come, then, then, then you're off base, right? You don't come to the services... <coughs> Excuse me, my voice is going, and I, I told Brother Jim this morning that the past couple of days I've been having a little bit of what he was having, so uh, just pray for me and bear with me. I don't mean to grade on you with my voice, but I'll do the best that I can. We're, you, you don't attend just to have lunch together. Now, I enjoy having lunch together. And I particularly enjoy when it's breakfast day, we have lunch together, okay? But I enjoy getting together and visiting and and, and having some time of fellowship, I enjoy that. But that's not the purpose and the reason why we're here, right? We're not a social institution. We're not a country club. You ought not to treat your church membership as an item on your resume so that if you desire to run for public office, you could say, well, I'm a member of this church, and I'm a member of this committee, and I do this, and I do that. We're not a social institution. We're not a country club. We don't exist for the pleasure of man. So what are we? We are a local, visible assembly. We are a local, visible assembly. That is what a church is. It is a local, visible assembly. As such, now hold on to your seats. As such, we meet regularly for services. If you are a church, you must meet regularly for services. You can't be a church and not meet regularly for services, right? We, we are a local, visible assembly. Folks, this is what Baptists have always believed. I told you a moment ago, I was going to give you a quote from a Lutheran, okay? And I've used this quote before. I have it in a book. I'll show you the book if you want. The book was written in the 1950s. It was written by a guy by the name of F.E. Meyer, who is a professor of systematic theology at Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis. Okay, And I bought this book at a yard sale, and uh, as Brother Ken Johnson used to, to teach pre young preachers, 
Man, the best way to find books on Baptist history is to look for books that other denominations have written because a lot of times they'll explain what Baptists have believed and they're, of course, numerous times trying to slight Baptists, but you get their side of history. So you say, well, they said we believe this and that's what we believe, so it's pretty reliable if they're saying we believe that, right? So F.E. Meyer wrote this. Among Baptists, the term church, is restricted to the local and visible congregation of the regenerate of the regenerate it is therefore foreign to them to speak of the church denominationally or universally and to employ such terminology as the baptist church there is no the baptist church right we don't have a hierarchy we don't have a headquarters right uh now we use the term the church just like we would use the term the family. There isn't one big family, right? Unless you're talking about the family of God. But we say the family. When we say the family, you know, the Johnsons aren't in the Kimberlin family. Now, now we are by affection, but not by blood. So we say the family, or we use the term the American Eagle. Well, there isn't just one big American Eagle, Eagle, right? We say the American Eagle to describe the, the species of the bird. And so... So, Meyer, who is a, who is a Lutheran and a, a professor of systematic theology, he himself, I believe the quote was from 1954, states that this is what Baptists have always believed. That we are a group of, of, of scripturally baptized believers. These are people who have been saved by the grace of God. You don't get baptized and join the church in order to be saved. You are baptized and you join the church because you are saved. And we are a group that is properly organized. We are a body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are congregated together to carry out Christ's great commission. That is the description of what a church is. And by the way, um, <clears throat> when, we, when we talk about the fact that we're not, we're not universal, invisible church people, I don't mean to... To sound mean-spirited in that or hard-hearted in that. I just don't believe that that's what the Scriptures teach. I do believe that there is a term that Jesus Himself used for all of the Lord's people, all of the saved people that are on the earth at any given time. And I don't believe it's the church. I believe that's referred to as the kingdom, right? That's the kingdom. And so uh, I don't say that with any malice or trying to pick a fight or anything like that. I just, that's my belief, right? And so we... We begin, we begin our uh, look at how that we can ensure our church remains relevant by confirming that the church, our church, was properly organized. We have to define and describe what a church is. And then we secondly must ensure that our church is properly established. Now this is necessary. It is, it's important to look at these types of things. Because Christ's church in Scripture is the only institution authorized to do His work. It is. You don't find any other institution in the Bible authorized to do the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice I use the term authorized. It doesn't mean that there aren't others that are doing the work, and it doesn't mean that there aren't others that are doing good work, but they're not uh, authorized to do that work. We don't fight with them. We don't get into tiffs with them. Uh, there are uh, a, a couple of different Bible verses that, you know, the disciples come and they say, hey, they're not of us. And Jesus says, well, let them alone. You know, they're, they're doing this work, right? And so, again, I think it's important that we take these Bible truths and these doctrines in a proper frame of mind. We're not out trying to pick a fight with anybody. We're not trying to, uh, you know, use terms that would describe somebody in a, in a negative light. We're just simply trying to describe what we believe the Bible teaches as it relates to what a church is and how that church has her authority. Okay, So Christ's church is the only institution authorized to do Christ's work. That is biblically provable. And I'll show you some verses here in a moment. Frank Godso wrote a book entitled The House of God years ago. And he wrote this. Bible missions and benevolence are made the sole responsibility of the assembly of Christ to be carried out through them under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. He is promised to direct through the congregation, not boards, committees, directories, 
directors and the like, but through the assemblies, right? And so you say, well, Brother Mel, why aren't you a Southern Baptist? Because I don't believe the Southern Baptist Convention has any authority from God. I believe that they usurp authority from churches. And by the way, they're corrupt. Can I say that as well? And I know I'll upset some people, but they're corrupt. And I've read you some things recently where it's proven that they are corrupt. Anytime you take a man-made organization and try to usurp the authority from the church, you're going to get corruption. Read Carol's Trail of Blood, and you'll find that very early on, the way that churches uh, went uh, away from the Lord and, and, and apostatized was because it was of the issue of authority in the church. And, oh, this person has their... We've got to follow this person. It isn't the church, it's this person. Hey... Brother Mel does not have authority. The church has authority. And so we're talking today about how that our church may remain relevant. we got to first of all ensure that we are a church. That we're properly organized. Now, it is no surprise to you that like begets like. Is that not true? You ever see a dog have a human baby? Like begets like. Go back to the book of Genesis where that very important but overlooked doctrine is established. Like begets like. Humans have human babies. Animals have animal babies. Plants produce like plants, right? Unless you mess with them and graft in other stuff, right? Like begets like. Churches beget like churches. A Baptist church does not establish a church that is a Lutheran church. Like begets like. And because of this, we must ensure that we have the authority of Jesus to operate as one of His churches. Now, I do not believe that we must prove what is referred to as chain link authority. Okay, and there are people that would disagree with me, good men that would disagree with me. I don't believe that it's necessary that we have to historically trace every church back to the church that Jesus Christ established. In fact, I think that sometimes when that's done, there are some stretches and embellishments that are made. But what I do believe is that the church that we have must match the church that Jesus Christ established in doctrine, in practice. And I've used this illustration before. If you're standing up on a hillside and there's a train down in the valley, and you see the train tracks, and the, there's a tunnel, right? So you got train tracks on this side, then you have this tunnel, and then you have train tracks on the other side. If you see a train on those tracks enter the tunnel on one side, isn't it a pretty fair conclusion that the train that comes out on the other side is the train that went in on this side? And that's what we believe about church authority. That the churches that the Lord Jesus Christ established in Scripture... We must maintain the authority that comes from Him. We must be recipients of that authority. We must be like His church. A church that has no semblance of the doctrine and practice of the church that Jesus Christ established has any authority to call themselves a church in any way. They're not a church. They might be gathering together, but what did Jesus practice? What kind of a church did He establish? Go back and find that out. Now, Authority has gotten a bad word as it relates to church organization and church establishment. But I want you to notice that Jesus Himself focused on the idea and the doctrine of authority. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter number 21, I want you to notice, beginning in verse number 23, Matthew chapter number 21, verse number 23, and we're going to read down through verse number 27. And I want you to notice the, uh, the idea here that is focused on. And Jesus does not, he does not skirt the issue. He confronts it head on. Now watch in, in Matthew chapter number 21 verse 23. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Now, stop. Jesus does not say authority is not important. He does not say that he doesn't, have, he doesn't have to address the topic of authority. Watch what he does. 
in verse 24, And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? But if we, if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all, the, all hold John as a prophet. Now stop. What is Jesus asking them? He's asking them, by what authority did John have to baptize? That's what he's asking. Where did John's authority come from? See, because what he's doing is he's setting up the fact that his authority comes from the Heavenly Father. He is God manifest in the flesh. He is completely authorized to do what He is doing. And Jesus asked, well, let me ask you this. Where did John's authority come from? And they're stumped by the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch verse 27. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And He said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. It is very clear that John's authority came from heaven. There was a man sent from God by the name of John. By the way, read John chapter number 1. There's a man sent from God by the name of John, and he was sent to do what? To baptize. He's John the Baptist. He's John the Dipper, if you will. Go back and look at the Greek word baptizo. It means to dip or immerse, right? And so Jesus embraces the idea of authority. We must have authority. What would you think if I said to you, hey, um, over lunch I say to you, hey, I got this guy coming and preaching next week. Well, who is he? Well, I don't know. I met him on the street. Well, where, what church is he from? I don't know. It's not important. Well, does he have any authority to preach the gospel? Did somebody ordain him? Did somebody put their stamp of approval on him? I don't know. Authority doesn't really matter. You'd think I'm off my rocker, Right? What kind of care would I have for the sheep? Man, that guy could get up here and preach anything. And then I might have to stop him in the middle of what he's talking about and say, you're not going to preach that here. We're going to, we're going to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. You can't get up here and say that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. Right? I just drew that out of, out of the air, but you get what I'm saying. Authority is important. It was embraced by the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that he used a parable to teach the idea of authority in his church. Now watch. Turn with me to Mark chapter number 13. Notice Mark chapter number 13. Mark chapter number 13 verses 34 and 35. Mark chapter number 13 verses 34 and 35. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house. What does our text say? That, that God's house is the church of the living God. That's his house, right? The Son of Man did take a far journey. He was crucified by wicked hands and he rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So the Son of Man is a man taking a far journey who left his house. Now watch. And gave authority to his servants. Where do his servants have authority? In his house. Jesus focused on the idea of authority. He says, And gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at evening or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. Now, look. I understand not all people agree with this idea. But i got to preach it the way I see the Bible teaching it. And I think authority was important to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think when any time you have somebody that just pops up and starts a church and you don't know what they believe and there's been no, no stamp of approval that's been put on them by a sponsoring church to say, you know what, we know this person, we, we vouch for this person, this person can be trusted, we're authorizing this person to do mission work, uh, I think you got problems. And folks, you and I both know and I'm not trying to be mean-spirited this morning, but you and I both know that there's a lot that's going on today in the name of missions that is not mission work. There's a lot of guys, forgive me, and I'm just going to be blunt, that should be working a job and serving in the local church and carrying out what they're doing as a ministry under their local church. And they're sent out as missionaries. They're not missionaries. They're not, 
right? Mission work, and we'll talk about what mission work is here in just a few moments. But the idea of authority may be repugnant to some, but Jesus focused on it. What am I saying with all that I've said up to this point? If we're going to be a church that's relevant, we've got to first of all be a church. We've got to be a true church. We've got we to be established properly in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first, the first way that we can ensure that our church remains relevant is that we confirm the church was properly organized. We were properly organized. We were, we were started under the authority of Faith Baptist Church in Granite City. We didn't just start the church and, you know, who's this guy? We were started on the authority, under the authority of Faith Baptist Church. And so that leads us to our, to our second way that we can ensure that the church remains relevant. And is that, that is that our church would carry out the Savior's prescribed orders. Our church would carry out the Savior's prescribed orders. Now, just like the church originated with Him and He organized the first church, the Church of Jerusalem, He owns... And he operates all true churches. Because as we read in the Bible, and we're not going to take time to turn to these verses this morning, he is the head of every New Testament church. Every church that exists properly, he is the head of that church. Now what, is our, what does our text say as it relates to this particular way that we can ensure that we remain relevant? Notice in 1 Timothy chapter number uh, uh, 3, verse number 15, the uh, Bible says, and Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, uh, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Now watch. The pillar and ground of the truth. The truth matters to God. His word is truth. His commands are truth. The words pillar and ground signify a column, a post, or a support. That which would be strong enough to hold something up. And the church is that which the Lord has deemed appropriate to hold up His Word, which consists of what? His orders for us. So, first of all, the, the first way we can remain relevant is to make sure we're a church. The second way that we can remain relevant is that we do what He told us to do. That we follow His commands. That we are obedient to what He says. Now, there are, and, and again, I told you there's nothing new that we're going to look at this morning, but it's the church anniversary and we want to remain relevant. So we go back and we look at some doctrines that we've covered in the past. We're to carry out the Savior's prescribed orders. What are His prescribed orders for the church? Well, we've got to think about why the church exists. What is the purpose of the church? Right? And, and again, there are all sorts of works that people get involved in with churches. Okay, and the, the intent this morning is not to discuss the scriptural, uh, uh, whether it's scriptural or not, to have a, a school in a church or have an orphanage that's funded with funds from the church and so forth and so on. But we're talking about what the purpose of the church is. And there's a threefold purpose by which the Lord gives us our prescribed orders as to what we are to focus on as a church. You know, a lot of churches go astray because they're focused on the wrong thing. They're focused on number in getting a huge group of people together so we can say, oh, we're a mega church and we got this amount of people. They're focused on making a name for themselves where, you know, you got this person who goes around and speaks and does this and that. And they're focused on all sorts of things except what they should be focused on as a church. So if we're to remain relevant, we've got to first of all make sure we're a church. And secondly, we're carrying out the Lord's prescribed orders as to what it is that He wants us to do and why we exist. The first purpose that we exist is for the edification of the saint. You that are here this morning, that you're saved by the grace of God, the Bible calls you a saint. And the church exists for your edification. Pastors have been given to churches for the purpose of edification. I read to you Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The word edify, as we've studied in times past, and particularly as we've studied the book of Ephesians on Wednesday night, it means a structure, a building, or to build up. 
The church exists for the edification of the same, for building up the same, for equipping the saint that we might live the life that the Lord wants us to live. Now, the word for edifying in verse number 12 of chapter number 4 of Ephesians is the same Greek word that is used for building in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 9 and Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21. Members of the Lord's churches are to conduct our affairs in the church so that the body is edified. Look, I know that there are some times when we come into the house of God and we get beat up. I get that. I understand that. Guess what? I get beat up before you because I get the message before you and then I have to get right with God because i got to deliver it to you. And I don't deliver it to you as though I'm some perfect figure that is saying, oh, you ought to do this because I'm perfect and I'm already doing it. No, we all get the message. And we are to, we are to make sure that we're heeding what God gives us. Did you know that, that one of the commands and exhortations that Paul gave Timothy was to reprove, rebuke, and exhort? There are some times when the preacher has to reprove and rebuke from the pulpit. But you know what? It all ought to be for the purpose of building up. It all ought to be for the purpose of edifying. Members of the Lord's churches are to conduct our affairs so that the entire body is edified and not just our choice favorite one or two members. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek ye that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. All things are to be done unto edifying. So why does the church exist? And how can our church remain relevant? Focusing on the edification of the saint. Focusing on how we might lift each other up in our work and service for the Lord. And again, sometimes that edification, that building up, has to come by tearing a few things down, right? You ever watch any of these home improvement shows on HGTV or used to be DIY, it's now the Magnolia Network? What's the first thing they do in a renovation? They tear, they tear out. They tear out. They tear out the old stuff. And they tear down the stuff that they're going to replace and they put the new stuff in. Sometimes there's some tearing up that needs to be done. Now sadly, there are people that have left this church that couldn't take the tearing down. They didn't, they didn't want any part of that. They wanted all of the building up, but none of the, the, the tearing down. And you know what? There has to be tearing down. There, there's got to be some things that are yanked out before we build up. And that's all part of it. And we have to understand that. We have to work together to accomplish that. And so, it is for the the edification of the saint that we can remain relevant uh, relevant if we focus on this. For the evangelization of the sinner. Turn with me to, you know these passages probably before I say them. Matthew chapter number 28. Notice in Matthew chapter number 28, we have here Matthew's version of the Great Commission. It's also recorded in Mark, Luke, and John, and also in the first part of the book of Acts. I want you to notice Matthew chapter number 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, who's them? The church. He spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's authority, is it not? It's exousia. It's authority. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This is the mission of the church. I read mission statements that churches come up with, and at one point when we were first uh, getting ready to organize, and I said, well, man, we probably need to come up with a mission statement. And I thought about writing, I actually did write some things out, And you know, they all were just repeats of Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. That's the mission of the church. This is what Jesus told the church to do. So, if we want to remain relevant, we got to be 
focused on carrying out the Savior's prescribed orders, that we're looking to the edification of the saint, that we're, we're uh, focusing on the evangelization of the sinner. Now, how do we do this? Well, there's a four-part way in which Jesus gives the commission to the church. First of all, declare. We declare the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that as we go out into the community, in our daily lives, in our, uh, as opportunities arise in our work situations, with our family members, we declare. And then secondly, we dip, right? I'm not talking about Skoll or Copenhagen. Uh, we dip those that are saved. I mean, we put them under the water. That's the proper mode of baptism. That's the scriptural mode of baptism. We dip this. This is not what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. So we declare, we dip. And then thirdly, we disciple. We teach them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. Is this not the Savior's prescribed order for the church? We, we disciple them and teach them the Word of God. And then lastly, we depend. We depend on God. Why? Because uh, we, He has said that, that He is with us always, even unto the end of the world, and all authority is given unto Him. And so... We depend on Him. How can we remain relevant? Well, it isn't by having a church circus and getting a bunch of the community in here. It's not by focusing on, you know, having homecoming Sunday and, you know, we old-fashioned Sunday and, you know, if we get a certain amount of people, then the preacher will kiss a pig. Uh, I've seen that in independent Baptist churches. That's not what we're to be focused on. That's not how we continue to be relevant we focus on the purposes of the church that we're we're speaking about edifying the saint and evangelizing the sinner that the lord would save and you know what there are there are opportunities that you have that you take advantage of and you never get to see the result have you ever thought about that you don't know what god does with the word that you speak you don't know that what god does with somebody that he saves as a result of your preaching or teaching, if you go back to and you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah, I want to, here's a quiz for you. Can you tell me how many people were saved under the ministry of Isaiah and Jeremiah? Can you? Is, was there any that were saved that you can read of? And yet these were faithful prophets. And then how many were saved under the ministry of Jonah? <laughs> oh, we got to have a dynamic preacher, a preacher that, that is perfect in every sense of the word. Well, Isaiah and Jeremiah were pretty good servants of the Lord. We don't read of anybody saved under their ministry. And yet Jonah, who pouted and didn't want to go to Nineveh and then got upset when God saved people. I mean, man, the whole town repented, okay? And so we got to keep things in perspective, right? For the evangelization of the sinner. And then lastly, for the exaltation of the Savior. we got to make sure that when we come into the house of the Lord... We're not focused on making sure that our worship pleases us. Brother Steve's going to trade in his acoustic guitar for an electric guitar. And I'm going to learn to play the drums. Okay, And Jim's going to gear up his bass. Right? We're going we're gonna to have a Tabernacle Baptist Church worship band. Okay, uh, Look, man, I love to hear Brother Steve play his acoustic guitar. But it, it, this is not about a rock concert. We're, we're not trying to please the flesh. We're trying to worship God. And when your focus is on pleasing the flesh, it can't be on worshiping God. You cannot focus on what makes us feel good because worship oftentimes isn't going to make us feel good. It's not about how we feel. Listen, worship and the exaltation of the Savior does appear to be the primary purpose of the church. Some folks say, well, the primary purpose is the evangelization of the sinner. Well, you know, everywhere I look, it, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple or the New Testament church, they're all geared toward the glory and exaltation of our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? If we have that right, don't you think it'll be a little easier to keep everything else right? If we're focused on exalting Jesus, if we're focused on pleasing Jesus and not pleasing the flesh it'll be a little bit easier to stay relevant whether people like us or not whether people flock to this building or not if we are approved of God then we will stay relevant 
When we exalt Him, we exalt Him through worship. And worship by its very definition is not man-centric. It is God-centric or God-centered. You're not going to hear me get up and start uh, doing all kinds of ridiculous stuff that leads to the exaltation of man. Because that's not what a church does. There are a lot of places that are focused on pleasing the flesh. Look, man, if you want to go see Mercy Me, do what you want to do, but don't bring it into the Lord's house where that becomes the focus and the center. God is the focus and the center of what we do in His house. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I read a few verses from that earlier, uh, from that chapter earlier, but now I want to read a few more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, uh, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. Then verse 25, And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God, and report that God is in you of a truth. What is Paul saying? Look, we all know what he's dealing with in chapter number 14. He's dealing with the topic of tongues. And you know, there are some that say, oh, well, we got to speak in this unknown tongue. That's not what tongues is. It's a language. And, and Paul is saying that, you know, now you got a visitor that comes in. And you all are up there speaking in all these strange sayings, right? And, and out of respect, I won't imitate it this morning, okay? What are people going to think? Man, these people are nuts. These people have lost their mind. They come in and the preacher's preaching the Word of God and the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them and convicts them and they fall on their face and worship God. It, 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 and who is exalted in that? God. God is exalted. And that's through the prophesying of the Word or the preaching of the Word. The purpose of our preaching is not so that you can, uh, not that you do, <laughs> or you would, say, oh man, what a great message that was. Brother Bell is so gifted in, in, in his homiletics. That's not the purpose of preaching. Not that I believe I'm getting, I'm using that as an illustration, you understand. When John spoke, who did people follow? Read it in John chapter 1. They followed Jesus. John spoke. They followed Jesus. That's the exaltation of the Savior, right? And so our services have to be geared toward exalting the Savior. I submit to you, if, they're fo if we're focused on that, we will remain relevant. Ephesians chapter number 3 verse 21 is a capstone verse for proving that the exaltation of the Savior is accomplished through the New Testament church. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, the Bible reads, Unto Him be glory. The word glory there is honor, praise, worship. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And so we're to be focused on the exaltation of the Savior. How do we re remain relevant as a church? Well, there's three ways we ensure the church remains relevant. We confirm the church is properly organized, that we are a church. Secondly, we carry out the Savior's prescribed orders and we focus on the purpose that He's given us. And then the third way is that we count on church members to perform their obligations. It cannot be one person or two people doing everything. We must carry the load and share the load. We are to be obedient and living out our obligations. Now here I told you just a little bit ago that in our text verse we were going to skip over the first part and come back to that later. The first part that we skipped in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 is where Paul writes that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself. Behave thyself where? In the house of God, which is the church of the living God. We are supposed to behave ourselves a certain way. And of course you understand, and I didn't mention this yet because I believe we all know this, the church is not the brick and mortar, it's the people. I already gave you the definition of what a church is. And so, we are a church even when we are not assembled together. You are a member of the church, right? Of this church. Tabernacle Baptist Church. I say to you, that if we live the way that we're supposed to live in carrying out our obligations, this church, 
our church will remain relevant. If we live the way that we're supposed to live. If we can count on each member to perform their obligations. Now, this leads us, and by the way, we'll be done shortly here, so bear with me. This leads us to, first of all, think about the codification of our obligations. The codification of our obligations. Where do we find our obligations? We find them in Scripture, of course. Scriptures give us our direction. We don't add obligations that are not in the Scriptures. We don't take away obligations that are in the Scriptures just because we don't like them. We neither add to or take away from the Word of God. The Scriptures give us our direction. Historically, Baptists have codified and put into a systematic form statements that help us in our direction and in our walk. Now, what is that called? That's called the church covenant. That's the church covenant. Charles DeWeese wrote a book entitled Baptist Church Covenants, and in that he writes, The Baptists have viewed covenants, along with believers' baptism and church discipline, as a means of nurturing and safeguarding the New Testament emphasis on a regenerate church membership. Covenants deserve careful evaluation because they help shape Baptist church membership standards and practices. So that means that you and I ought to periodically go back to the church covenant, and I taught through the church covenant, I preached through the church covenant, you and I ought to go back and, and, and consult the church covenant to remind ourselves just what we agreed to. Just what we said we would do as our obligations. Now the covenant, it is not scripture. But it is based on scripture. And when we studied the covenant, I gave you manifold scripture on each portion of the covenant to show you that it is based on scripture. Now the word covenant comes from a Latin word that means to come, a coming together, a meeting or agreement of minds. That's what a covenant is. And our church covenant is just that. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines covenant in this way. In church affairs, it is a solemn agreement between the members of a church that they will walk together according to the precepts of the gospel in brotherly affection. Beloved, how can we remain relevant if we cannot count on each other to perform our several obligations? We won't. We can't. We all got to be doing what we said we would do. That what we committed to do. These are obligations. They're referred to as engagements, but they're obligations, right? So, having considered the codification of our obligations, we now want to go back and consult our church covenant as to the outline of our obligations. When's the last time you read the church covenant? When's the last time you looked at the church covenant? Do you remember anything about the church covenant? Or is it just a is it just something that, oh well, you know, we're a Baptist church, gotta have a church covenant, so we'll just gotta put this on the back of the church constitution and bylaws, and you know, covenant doesn't mean anything. Hey, it should mean something. It should mean something. You know the church covenant we have our military members here this morning, and you know I'm military through and through, okay? When you took that oath that you were gonna defend the Constitution in this country. I hope there wasn't anything more important to you than that. As a military member, I'm willing to die for this nation. I don't like what this person said, but you know what? We have freedom of speech, and I'm willing to die that they would have that right. And effort. Wouldn't it be great if the others reciprocated that, by the way? You know, as a church member, there ought not to be anything more important to you in your church life as to the obligations that you've made to the Lord and to this church. That ought to mean something to you. That ought to be important to you. They ought not to be only important when it fits your needs or it's convenient. You know, it doesn't it doesn't interfere with your life. I'll fulfill my obligations as long as it doesn't interfere with my life too much. But if it interferes too much if it interferes with my family relationships, if it interferes with my financial responsibilities or any of the sort, well, then that comes second. The covenant comes second. No. No, it doesn't. And by the way, we're not a cult. You don't answer to me. You answer to the Lord. Okay? Our church obligation should mean something to us. As you know, historically, 
The church covenant that we use was originally written in 1833 by an old New England Baptist by the name of J. Newton Brown. It was published officially in 1853 in uh, Pendleton's Baptist Church Manual. These are old. You know what? Old is sometimes a lot better than what we have that's new. It's the old paths. And the covenant describes our engagements. We engage to do this. The word engage means to promise or pledge uh, by way of our word to bind oneself to an obligation. And that's what we did when we joined the church. We made engagements. We took on certain obligations. Now quickly go through these and we'll be done. There are five paragraphs in the church covenant. The first paragraph deals with professing obligations. Professing obligations. Paragraph 1 literally reads, Having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. That's an obligation. These describe the means of entering into the covenant, that we're embracing Tabernacle Baptist Church. We agree with the doctrine of Tabernacle Baptist Church. By the way, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything. We're not clones. We don't agree with every everybody on everything. We're allowed some latitude on things that are non-critical. Uh, I mean, there are foundations and fundamentals of the faith that we must stick with, and there's no room for leeway. There are other areas where there are. There is room for leeway. There's room for us to read the Scriptures and determine and be fully convinced in our own mind what we believe about something. But as, as it relates to the fundamentals, we must be in agreement. Paragraph 1 describes the means of entering in to the covenant, right? And then paragraph number 2 deals with promissory obligations. Promissory obligations. The, the covenant contains promises that are a binding declaration of something that we say we will do. We give our word that we're going to do it. Here's paragraph number two. We engage therefore by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort to promote its prosperity and spirituality to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines to give it a sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. These describe our ecclesiastical engagements, our church obligations. And, man, listen, by the way, you may not think so, but I'm exercising great restraint this morning because there's much that I can say as it relates to these obligations. But I want to get you out of here in time to eat today. Okay. The third paragraph deals with personal Christian, Christian living obligations. These are testimonial obligations. Here it is. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment or our conduct, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. None of that has been done away with. That's all what we agreed that we said we would do. Those are our obligations as it relates to personal Christian living obligations. Paragraph number four deals with preferential obligations. These describe our brotherly engagements, how we are to treat one another. This paragraph, paragraph four reads, We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. It's not difficult. Can you imagine if we're all doing this? Do you think we would continue to remain relevant as a church? We would, and we shall. And then the last... The last... Uh, area paragraph that deals with our obligations paragraph number five uh, this deals with uh, when we're actually departing from a church we're, we're we're leaving a church right and you know this i've preached this to i'm blue in the face there's a right way and a wrong way to leave a church this is not a cult you're not born into this church you don't have to stay in this church but there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it there have been people that have left this church in a right way 
there have been people that have left this church in a wrong way. And apparently they didn't listen to anything I said or preached or taught about parting obligations. Parting obligations, paragraph 5. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church of like faith and order where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Where'd they go? Church doesn't even have the name Baptist? Doesn't use the word of God? Something's wrong there. Something's wrong. These are departing engagements. Look, you get the point. That if we're to remain relevant, we each got to do our job. We each got to, we each got to take care of what we're supposed to take care of. It's that old adage that is good in sports and it's good at work, it's good in families, it's good in churches, and that's this. Just do your job. Just do your job. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't do what you don't try to do what you can't do. Do your job. Right? Leave the preaching to the preacher. If you don't like the preaching of the preacher, get another preacher. Right? I don't say that in, in, in arrogance or anything, but isn't that right? I mean, don't try to do the preacher's job. I won't try to do your job. Jim, you don't when's the last time I said Hey, Brother Jim, I don't really like the way you're handling the church finances. Can you bring me the books and let me take a look at it? Have you, has that ever happened? You're the church treasurer. I don't, I don't intervene in what your job is and what your responsibility is. Do your job. And if we each do our job, we will remain relevant, right? We will remain relevant. So we, we should count on church members to perform their obligations. I don't know about you. I mean, look. It's a wonderful thing to be involved in the work of the Lord. And to, to be in a place where the Lord has clearly displayed His sovereignty and has taught so many things to us, some of them painful, some of them joyful, but all of the Lord, uh, I, I praise and honor and, and exalt and glorify the Lord. And I pray that the Lord will continue to bless Tabernacle Baptist Church. We will continue to exist as He sees fit. But we will not be relevant if we don't, first of all, confirm that we're properly organized, that we are a church. Secondly, that we're carrying out the Savior's prescribed orders and focused on the purposes of the church. Then thirdly, counting on each member to perform their obligations, we won't remain relevant. I want to remain relevant. I don't want to just go through the motions. I want to remain relevant. And by God's grace, we can and shall. Let's pray.